In the past few years, racist incidents have been on the rise in professional leagues around the world. The most recent case involving Real Madrid player Vinicius Jr. in Spanish soccer. Vinicius has been attacked by fans, players, and even the La Liga commissioner. When the commissioner of one of the biggest soccer leagues in the world gets defensive about racial injuries toward one of his players, we naturally ask ourselves, how racist is the world of sports? To answer this question, we have to look at some of the biggest sports leagues in Europe and the US. In 2022, Arne Koch, an associate professor in the Department of German and Russian at Colby College in Waterville, Maine, wrote a scientific paper called The Paradoxical Reality of Racism, German Soccer and the Irreversibility of Multiculturalism. In the article, he talked about cases of racist offenses against foreign players in the German league and the difference in treatment between traditional Germans and non-traditional Germans. According to Dr. Koch, German multicultural exposure started to be seen in the German national team in the 1970s, but it was only after the unification of Germany in 1989 that the number of players with different backgrounds really increased. However, the reception of these players by German fans was skeptical and suspicious, as Koch explains. The acceptance of them, which is always tied to success, I yeah. think was more, was more significant in the 2000s because with the success from players like, uh, like Uziel and Gunduan and uh, Jérôme Boateng, you know, it, it seemed to be second nature to say, yes, they're, you know, they're one of us, right? Mm -hmm. They were accepted as one of the national team as long <laughs> as they were successful, yeah. as long as they met the definitions of what a good German player would do. This suspicion can be seen in the case of Bakary Jatta, a Gambian refugee and Hamburg SV player who was accused by the German media of falsifying his identity to enter Germany in 2015, a year before he signed with Hamburg. As Koch explains, despite having no proof to support their claim, the German media still attacked Jatta, who had to prove his innocence in court. There is still that suspicion of him mm -hmm. having been dishonest about his identity, even though nothing could ever be proved and was proven. Mm -hmm. And it just it just proves it just shows this idea of, you know, it's more challenging for some people to 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 prove they're innocent. And, and just the suspicion is something that sticks with with people the way it had stuck with with Jutter for a long time. What's more important is that it's not just the professional leagues that have these problems. Youth and developmental leagues are oftentimes structured in an oppressive way because of systemic racism, as Dr. Koch demonstrates. There is systemic racism, and it's very difficult to call it out. And um, Vinicius has called out La Liga for it. And some of the Bayern youth players have called out um, some of the coaches for it. And others have not, understandably so, because of the power dynamics. Mm -hmm. It's difficult for a player who wants to be a professional soccer player to tell, you know, your organization that a talent scout or a coach is racist or has biases or makes you train harder than anybody else. And systemic racism is not just exclusive to Germany. 
Dr. Chris Lamb, a professor and chair of the Journalism and Public Relations Department at IUPUI, explains that the most common form of racism in American sports is systemic racism. Oh, I, I think the most common uh, form of racism is probably the most powerful, and that's that the owners of teams, of sports teams, the, the people who run leagues, the commissioners of leagues, all front office jobs are 99.9% white. And, and that gives a real disadvantage to those people who aren't because they don't get, we, we tend to hire people who look like us. So that explains why we have so few uh, minorities in front office positions and managers of teams, coaches of teams, and, and things like that. With a fundamental problem on their hands, the major leagues implement changes that often serves just as facades, which is the case of the Rooney Rule. As the NFL website explains, the Rooney Rule was created in 2003 to help increase the number of minority hires for head coach positions in the NFL by requiring every team with a head coaching vacancy to interview at least one or more diverse candidates before making a new hire. But the rule did not make the impact expected. For Dr. Lamb, players need to push harder for change so league executives feel forced to actually change. The Rooney Rule, which the NFL uh, created 20 years ago to uh, to bring about more blacks in head coaching positions, uh, 20 years ago when they passed it, there were three black head coaches. 20 years later, I think there are three black head coaches. So it obviously is a, a failure. Um, what they can do is the players really have to push this issue. The players have to go out publicly. The players, it would be nice if the players got to the point where they struck, where they went on strike. And, and they say, hey, we're not going to play until we see more people who look like us in front offices. That's the only way I think something's going to happen. I, I just think this has been going on for 100 years and it's not going to change. And you have, you know, it's a lot of wealthy, white, uh, rich men who run things. And, and that's going to be the case until something happens that uh, changes that. Dr. Lamb explains that change is gradual, but players need to push for them nonetheless. The most prominent case of change regarding race is the case of Jackie Robinson, the first black player to play in Major League Baseball. In 1947, he was called up by the then Brooklyn Dodgers and was received with a hostile reception, including players and coaches calling him slurs, threatening to strike, and using excessive force against him. As Dr. Lamb explains, players need to understand their power and use it for good. I think it's going to take something drastic. I mean, it took, I mean, Jackie Robinson, you know, put his life on the line and, and it took 12 years before the Major League Baseball was fully integrated. And it took another 25 years after Robinson played his first game before there was the first black manager and another 10 or 15 years before women were allowed in locker rooms. So these things happen slowly, but I just don't think the players, either they don't care, which is possible, or they care and they don't know what to do about it. But I don't think players realize how much power they have. However, players need to be careful with hollow gestures of protest and need to follow through with their intentions. 
as Dr. Galen Clavio, a professor and director of undergraduate studies for the media school at IU, explains, kneeling but not doing anything else afterward can have the opposite effect expected by players. A lot of the questions surrounding demonstrations, like with the players taking a knee before kick, do end up almost being performative in a way because then it becomes a matter of well did you do that did you not do that and what does that say about how much you care about the incident when what really matters i think more than anything else is you know what is being done to try to address the underlying issues of racism within sports and you know uh, there, there's a there's a real kind of subtext in politics and political interactions with media that has to be thought about regarding whether whether you're doing something to show that you care or whether you're actually doing something behind the scenes to fix it. Now, those two things aren't mutually exclusive, but sometimes it's a lot of emphasis put on the former and not a lot put on the latter. And I think that bothers some people, and I understand their perspective on that. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's a complicated thing. And I guess maybe the overarching issue I often have with this is because it is a complicated thing, because there's generally some, some nuance and some, uh, some issues that have to be worked out that aren't just black and white, no, no pun intended. Um, but, it, you know, it oftentimes gets reduced down to a binary, like, did the, you know, did people kneel or did they not? And I think that actually makes the situation more difficult, because uh, if there's people who are skeptical about whether this matters, they can point to that and say, well, this is actually not being taken seriously, and so therefore there's not actually a problem. And I think that actually ends up having the reverse impact of what a lot of people are hoping that it's going to have when they do those sorts of things. In his article, Dr. Koch talked about the case of Jordan Torunariga, a German player of Nigerian descent that was the target of animal noises and verbal insults from Schalke 04 fans. Besides the insults from the stands, Schalke officials downplayed the incident after the game. On top of that, during the post-game interview, Schalke's coach David Wagner said he was in favor of stopping play in case of racist offenses, as FIFA guidelines demand, but only if both clubs, all officials and referees were aware of the racist abuse when it happened. As Dr. Koch explains, players need to feel supported by organizations and people have to be held accountable. No, there nothing happened there. Uh, you know, it was it wasn't it was an apology. And sorry, I I wasn't racist. I didn't mean to be racist. You know, this is just me shooting from the hip. I mean, it's sort of the um, the idea of of a lack of awareness about how much words do matter and what you know. Once it's out there, it's very difficult to take back. There were no there were no repercussions really for the for the coach. And again, that's that's problematic, right? Because then then it sends a signal that the that the organization is in cahoots, and that the organization that the organization shares that. Which you know, if you think about again the Vinicius example and La Liga, um, you know, where where even the the chairman of La Liga, the CEO of La Liga, in his eighty five minute press conference following. Vinicius um, condemnations of La Liga, where where he he was almost I mean he was defensive, right? He was he was pushing it off onto onto politicians. When if you look back at Dani Alves back in 2013 or 2010, right? That sort of famous the, banana, banana incident, yeah. right? 
um, he was he was calling out La Liga back there for not doing enough about racism. So I mean, this is this is a decade in the making, and um, it takes us back to uh, the, your great question about do these gestures do the trick? The answer is no. If the if the organizations don't change and if the organizations don't have the courage to follow through, i.e., if they think money is more important than than doing the right thing, then it'll take all an awful long, lot longer. But it's not only up to players to push for changes. The media is also very influential and can help players off the pitch. As Dr. Clavio explains, the media has to expose people to these problems and help them understand the player's perspective so they can support the player's actions. Media-wise, the, the way that you increase understanding and accountability is that you, you have to provide a forum for the voices of people who feel affected by these things. You have to uh, have them speak on why it's a problem, because I think, to, you know, for a lot of the audience, if they don't experience something themselves, they don't think that it's a problem. And where media is at its best when it comes to these sorts of things is when it is able to act as an agent of education, when it's able to provide for people a perspective, you know, from the mouths of, of someone who's lived it or is living it, that they themselves have not been able to experience. And so that, uh, that to me is, is where, if media is going to play a positive role in trying to uh, mitigate or eliminate these sorts of incidents in sport, that's what media has to do. They have to provide a forum where people can talk through what they've experienced or what people like them have experienced and, and try to communicate to the audience why this is a big deal and, and why they should feel uh, in, you know, in a way that is essentially supportive. When talking about the media, the internet cannot be excluded and unfortunately the internet is not always a very welcoming place. As Dr. Clavier explains, the internet is a direct way of communicating with the public, but this is not always a good thing. Social media originally was looked at as a way to communicate directly with audiences and that's exactly what it is. And I think what we're learning through social media is that it's something that people who worked in broadcasting or worked in media have known for a long time, which is that the public, like the, the audiences themselves, are generally not very nice people. They generally don't say a lot of intelligent things. They generally uh, will say things that you're just shocked that somebody would feel comfortable saying to another human being. Uh, but that's exactly how audiences work. And, and those people essentially, uh, they they feel liberated to say what is on their mind, even if what is on their mind is racist or sexist or homophobic or all three of those things, because they don't, there's not going to be any consequences for them saying those things in most cases. Dr. Lamb also agrees that the internet has divided people and made them feel like they're not responsible for what they write. And that brings out the worst in people. Oh, I think it, I think it's made us all more racist. I, I just think that social media, because there's no filter. You know, you don't stop and think like if you were writing, we used to write letters, you would say, oh, that's or you type something and you'd say, oh, I better not send that. That's, or, or, you know, somebody may you know misread that. But social media, it's just always just sort of vomiting. It's just a reaction to things and it's the base society. I mean, which is not to say the social I want to do away with social media. I don't. But it certainly has has polarized us. For better or worse, the First Amendment prevents the government from banning any kind of speech on social media. 
but that doesn't mean that hateful speech will be tolerated by its users. Since the platforms cannot possibly have enough moderators to overlook user activity, it is up to the user to decide if they want to be on the platform or not, as Dr. Clavio explains. There's no way to really restrict those sorts of comments at scale. So like, you know, you've got 80% of the U.S. population uses Facebook. There's no way you could hire enough moderators to go in and ban all the racist comments or take all those things out. And what that means is that for a lot of these big social media companies, because it, it's like technically impossible for them to go in and do everything uh, to make these, you know, to remove racism or other things from the discourse, they just don't even try. And now it becomes up to the user to decide whether they want to be on those networks in the first place. And I think, honestly, what's happening is people, you know, whether they are athletes or whether they are, you know, journalists or, or whatever, a lot of people just make a decision that they're not going to be on the networks, and that ends up being how it works out. Now, I think in smaller online communities or, you know, like on Facebook, you could have, like, groups that are devoted to certain topics. You'll have people that will moderate those discussions, and they can go in and ban people and delete racist comments. That's about the only way you can do it. Uh, so I think on a smaller scale level, a lot of communities have to make a decision about what behavior they're willing to tolerate and allow versus what behavior they're, they're willing to say, we will not allow that under any circumstances. But I think for the big companies, it's almost too big of a job and they're not legally required to do it. And they've shown over and over again, they're not going to abide by an idea that, hey, we want to make this a safe space for everybody. So I think eventually they will suffer commercially for that. But as of now, there's really nothing that can be done because there's no way that that particular uh, governmental statute that gives them that immunity is going to be changed, at least not in the near future. Race and discrimination are complicated topics to deal with, but that doesn't mean that changing for the better is impossible. As Dr. Lamb remarks, we have to talk about it so people feel inspired to change, and then change will come. Sports is powerful and needs to be treated as such. When we're, when we're in our classes, when I was growing up, I'm a pretty old guy, I'm in my 60s. We never talked about race. We may have had five minutes on Booker T. Washington or George Washington Carver or somebody like that, but we never talked about race. And you can't talk about American history without talking about race, but you also can't talk about, you can't talk about race in this country without talking about sports. Because for the longest time, white America knew nothing about black engineers or black educators or black doctors or black judges. But they knew about black baseball players because they would play in different parts. They'd, they'd barnstorm around the country and white people went to see them play and they were treated equally on the playing field. And then comes Jackie Robinson in 1946 and 1947, and he single-handedly, you know, moves the wheels of justice a little bit because people are now saying that here is this guy who's every bit our equal and in many cases our, our superior. And I just think we need to look a lot more at race and we need to look a lot more at sports. For WFHB, I'm Leo Pais.